First, though, taking a look at what is happening in Ukraine. This is Robert Oliphant, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, talking about whether or not what is happening could be war crimes. Russia's actions are as deplorable as they are unacceptable to us and to the international community. And they indeed may amount to war crimes under international humanitarian law, which is why we stand together with other nations referring this to the International Criminal Court to, to actually investigate to see whether war crimes are already being committed. As uh, my colleague has stated, uh, we will continue to stand with the Ukrainian people and our response has been strong and it has been fast. Let's bring on Mario Canseco now. He is the president at Research Co. And Research Co. has just done a poll, a survey of Canadians, and finding out where Canadians stand when it comes to federal government support of Ukraine and support of Ukraine as Ukraine fights back against this Russian invasion. Mario, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Great to be here with you. What did you ask Canadians about this? Well, we wanted to know three things. We wanted to know if they were following the conflict, and it turns out that most of us are. Uh, what should be uh, the uh, role of the Canadian government in all of this? And ultimately, if they are happy with the decisions that have been taken so far uh, by Justin Trudeau and the federal government. And, and the answer is definitely more likely to be support for Ukraine. Uh, very distant second place would be to stay out of this completely. And there is a majority of Canadians who believe that the government has taken the right course of action so far. So in that sense, uh, there is not a lot of um, animosity towards uh, the role that the government has decided to play in this crisis. And for this particular study, this was online. It was 1,000 adults and it was between February 25th and February 27th. So before, uh, before February 28th, would you say a majority? Can you break down those numbers a bit? Of course, uh, we asked them uh, what the federal government should do when it comes to this crisis. And we have 53% of Canadians who believe that Ottawa should definitely or probably support Ukraine. There's 32% who believe that the federal government should do nothing or essentially avoid getting involved in the conflict. And there's only 1% of Canadians who believe that Ottawa right now should be backing Russia. So we have a clear majority of Canadians who believe that the federal government should stand side by side with Ukraine for the duration of this conflict. Did it break down or was it different than if you looked at political parties or how people would tend to vote? Did that go in line with how they felt about this or was there a, a difference there? Well, there's a couple of issues that are quite striking here. And one of them is uh, the younger generation, uh, Canadians aged 18 to 34, actually split on this. 43% believe that the government should be behind Ukraine and 41% would actually prefer neutrality. Uh, the numbers are definitely more lopsided when it comes to Generation X and baby boomers and significant majorities believe in that the government should be with Ukraine. Uh, but there's also a little bit of a shift when it comes to politics. Uh, Two thirds of those who voted for the NDP or the Liberals uh, believe that the government uh, should be standing with Ukraine. 
uh, but it drops to 53% with conservatives. It's still a majority of conservatives who believe that the government should be behind Ukraine right now, but it's a significantly lower proportion than what we see with those who voted for the center-left parties. And when we take a look again at when this survey specifically was conducted, this was after the announcement that Canada was sending almost $8 million in lethal equipment and was going to be lending millions of dollars to Ukraine. We've seen more promises of of more help, that type of support being sent. But this was after that initial announcement. And did people respond specifically to that support? Yeah, what we see here, and this is one of the challenges, of course, when you're doing a survey in the middle of a conflict. Uh, you know, we were in field last weekend. We were still in the early stages of this conflict, and we still saw a high level of support for Ukraine and the actions of the federal government. Um, at the time, we were still able to talk a little bit about some of the sanctions that Canada has decided to impose, but there's been more action since that time. So maybe what we have right now is actually a little bit of a higher level of support for the government. But at the time, when this was still in, the, in its early stages, it's clear that Canadians want to help Ukraine and want the federal government to play a role in this. And the criticism towards the government is coming mostly from conservatives. It's not necessarily that they don't want to help Ukraine. It's that they maybe wanted to see something different as far as the actions of Justin Trudeau on this file. And, and interesting when you mentioned that, because I would imagine that this would be the type of polling or when you survey Canadians where you would see a big shift or, or more potential for shifts of opinions in a short period of time as we watch things unfold in Ukraine and as the situation changes so quickly. Well, one of the things that is so, so crucial here, it's not as if Russia is starting with a fantastic position when it comes to the views of Canadians. So we ask Canadians every six months about the reviews in, in regards to specific countries. And Russia has always been at the bottom, a little bit lower than, uh, well, certainly a little bit higher than what we've seen for China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and North Korea. Uh, those are the groups that have the significantly similar levels of favorability within Canadians uh, as Russia does. So it's not as if they're starting from a situation where everybody believes that they're a friendly bunch. Um, there's been certainly a few years now when we've been asking this question and fewer than three in 10 Canadians have a favorable view of Russia. So it was understandable for the numbers to be this lopsided, particularly because of the actions that they decided to undertook. And when you talk about them being lopsided, though, are, are you surprised at all? I mean, I, I'm not surprised that it's a majority of Canadians that say yes, the federal government, that we do have a role to play in this international crisis. Are you surprised that the number wasn't bigger? Well, I was a little bit surprised about the level of support for neutrality. I, I certainly wasn't expecting a high level of support for Russia. Uh, but we do have a third of Canadians who believe that the best course of action is to step aside. And this is definitely different from other conflicts that we've seen in the past. You know, I remember in the early stages of the war in Iraq, uh, we had a significantly larger proportion of Canadians who were saying, this isn't our fight. We shouldn't be getting involved in this. It wasn't the same during the war in Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, on this one, it was a little bit surprising to see one third who say, 
this isn't our fight. Now, obviously, because of the way people are covering the story and everything that has happened over the past few days, then maybe those numbers are going to shift a little bit. But from the start, especially with all the connections that Canada has to Ukraine, uh, it was a little bit surprising to have a third of, of us saying um, this isn't really something we should get involved in. And that number again with the 41% preferring neutrality, did you did you get a sense of was it because they were opposed to a certain type of support, be it opposed to, say, monetary support or uh, opposed to sending lethal weapons to Ukraine? Was it a specific type of response that people felt Canada shouldn't be involved in? I think it's more related to ideology in a way. Uh, we have more conservatives who believe that we shouldn't be doing anything at all, 36%. Uh, liberals at 27%, the NDP at 21%, which is quite remarkable in the sense that uh, we do have supporters of the other center-left party, which is not in government, essentially saying it is our duty to do something like this. Uh, the level of support uh, for Ukraine, as far as the federal government is concerned, is actually higher with NDP voters at 67%, a little bit lower with Liberals at 65 So there's definitely more of a situation where part of the opposition is coming from Conservatives who maybe you have that group that is always going to be upset with whatever the government does. And, and this seems to be one of them. You know, they, see, they, they strongly believe that the best course of action here is to step aside. All right, Mario, thank you so much for joining us and breaking down these numbers for us today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. Well, it took many more hours and there were several speakers who addressed Vancouver City Council, but there is an update when it comes to the single-use cup fee that is in place in the city. There have been a few changes and joining us now to talk more about where that sits is Vancouver City Councillor Rebecca Bly. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. So can you just refresh our memories? This was a fee that came in. There were some concerns that were raised to council about this 25 cent fee for reusable cups in the city of Vancouver. Uh, what happened after that and where are we at with the fee now? So after hearing a number of concerns um, related to how the bylaw was uh, rolling out and, and being applied, um, uh, I brought a motion forward a few weeks ago to ask staff to go and review some of this initial feedback and come back um, to council before March 15th with uh, recommendations to improve the bylaw. And is that what uh, the the meeting was held where there were many speakers? That's what was addressed yesterday? That's right. So we had the meeting yesterday. Uh, staff did come with some minor amendments and we had a number of speakers sign up to um, speak to the report. And am I correct in saying you had actually called, you wanted to see the the uh, cup fee repealed? I did. I moved after looking at staff's recommendations and not feeling like they adequately addressed the, the real concerns that were raised by consumers, by businesses, by, uh, you know, low-income equity-seeking um, advocates and, and the like. Uh, it was clear that the report back from staff really was to say that we should sort of keep going with some minor edits, and it just wasn't uh, dealing with the core issues. So I did move an amendment um, to repeal the 25 cent fee on single-use beverage cups, which would have had um, other parts of the bylaw remain intact. For example, um, uh, plastic shopping bags. Um, um, no longer being allowed in businesses, which is a, a policy that actually the federal government is likely to bring in anyways uh, in the coming weeks. 
Um, so that remains intact in, in other um, parts of the bylaw. It was just trying to address this 25 cent fee on the beverage cups. So where do we stand now with the bylaw then? Where is that fee in place or are there any exemptions? There are some exemptions um, that were part of the staff recommendation. So, for example, if um, somebody provides is provided a free drink voucher um, or free drinking water, um, food vendors, points, rewards programs, monetary gift vouchers, things like that. So, for example, if you get a drink and a popcorn voucher um, and you go to the movies and you, you don't have to pay that 25 cent fee, which was part of the issues that were raised initially, um, but it does also mean that if you um, go to a Starbucks, for example, and you get a $30 gift card, if you're using your gift card, then you don't pay the $0.25. Cents. So um, it's still very confusing and doesn't necessarily address the what this bylaw is set out to do, which is reduce single-use waste, which we very much have to do. But the loopholes, there's many. That seems like a pretty big one. If So if you have a Starbucks app and you then load it up with gift cards, you would never pay the fee for the cup? That is how this is written. And those, that was the question I was raised to staff. I raised to staff yesterday and they didn't have a response to that at that time. What does it do then for, so that was that meant to help with, because one of the concerns that came up when we spoke to an individual on this show, it was for vouchers and gift cards and things that are given to people, maybe that can't afford coffee, certainly can't afford a 25% fee when they're getting a free coffee or free beverage. It sounds like that was to address that particular concern, but it's, it's kind of gone, gotten bigger than that. Was, was that what that was meant to, to fix? I believe it is. In addition to that recommendation, staff also um, asked council's direction to work with nonprofit, social enterprise, low-cost um, community or neighborhood businesses um, who just deliver services to those that are um, are affected by income inequality. So basically, low-income folks to go work with those organizations to make sure that this fee wasn't um, harming uh, low-income people. So there's a separate resolution that addresses that. Um, this one still seems very vague and confusing in terms of exempting monetary gift vouchers, which a gift card would be categorized as. It also seems like when, and many people have asked this question, how is this helping the environment? This doesn't sound like it's actually doing anything to reduce the number of cups. If you're ordering on an app, if you're going in with a gift card, if you're going in with a voucher, there's nothing to to make it so you're not using a reusable cup. If the point of this bylaw is to keep cups out of the landfill, how is it doing that? Well, to be quite honest, I don't believe it is on its own. And that's why I fully support diverting the more than 80 million cups out um, of the the landfill, and that's just Vancouver's portion. So I absolutely support that, and we do need to take action to reduce our single-use waste. However, when you have a fee like this where there's no alternatives for customers, think of drive-thrus, think of food delivery apps. We heard from the restaurant uh, association. They came to speak to council. They said this bylaw is not working um, we've got multinational, we've got major drive-through chains that say that there's really no way to um, manage a reusable cup share program as one example in a drive-through context um, that we need to 
get rid of this fee because it's the customers that are, are paying this extra 25 cents without any other options. There's no guidance in the bylaw or accountability in how the revenue is spent by the businesses. Um, and then further to the point you just made is that public health has already said that businesses can safely now um, accept personal cups, reusable cups. So that's in place from, a, from the public health order's perspective. You've got uh, reusable cup share programs that have been uh, rolling out these programs for the last two years. They are well underway. So why do we need this additional regulation from the city of Vancouver that is really a punitive fee for those that cannot come up with another option in the, in the moment? And that does affect, generally speaking, lower income folks. And, and those that can't really afford um, the the, um, the addi- any additional fees, uh, generally speaking, in this context. And I and I think it's, you make a good point. And no one's suggesting that we love having these millions of cups put into the landfill every year. And it's a great idea to find ways to get them out of the landfill. But it just seems like there has been an, a very large amount of time and money spent at Vancouver City Council to try and figure this out, to come up with something that's still not going to achieve that. Absolutely. And part of the recommendations is to allow 18 months um, before a report back from staff to council that may um, suggest potential options to require businesses to provide usable cuts. It's 18 months between now and then where you've got organizations that are um, that have millions of transactions in a year and they are clearing with no additional uh, added service or overhead or anything um, millions of dollars out of the pockets of the, our, our, the residents of our city. And there's just no, there just doesn't seem to be any awareness in terms of um, the illogical application of this bylaw when it comes to actually achieving the outcome, but also the fact that we've got major chains that are walking away with millions of dollars based on a fee that City of Vancouver has implemented. Was there anything addressed in the revision of this bylaw that looked at that? That Because that's one of the other big questions is the money goes to the businesses and the idea being, oh, you're supposed to do things that are good for the environment with it. But it doesn't seem like there's any enforcement of that or anybody even watching to see where the money goes. Absolutely. I mean, that that is part of what we heard yesterday. And let me just start on this preface this comment with the fact that businesses especially small local businesses have been incredibly hard hit we know that because of COVID so um, you know any any way that they especially the federal um, programs um, you know that are are ending any way for them to get a little bit of a um, of a break I guess you could say um, it's difficult for them to sort of say, no, no, this is, this is not working. This revenue is not working um, when they're so desperate really to stabilize their, their um, businesses financially. So I feel for the businesses in those circumstances, but at the end of the day, we heard from the, um, a couple of the speakers yesterday who own the businesses around the reusable cup share programs, that it's, still remains difficult to get businesses to invest in the upfront costs of those programs. So despite this bylaw being in effect for two months, it's it's still difficult, not all, but some businesses to sort of buy in and start participating with some of that upfront cost. So there's a lot of complex um, layers here, and there's a lot of uh, demands being pulled in many different directions on this issue. Uh, the timing is off the 
the outcomes are not being achieved. It just it just should have been repealed, but I'm disappointed that council didn't see it that way. What happens now then? Is this it moving forward and maybe in 18 months, maybe after the next civic election, we might look at this again or what happens now? Well, the the latter is probably what I would say. Um, you know, is this, a, is this an issue going into the election? I, I think that people just want to see a reasonable, common-sense approach to deci- decision-making. And so we'll have to see what happens over the next six to eight months. And and maybe, you know, this time next year we'll be talking about this in a different context where there's actually an option to, to look at this. And, and not to say, you know what, we're absolutely fine with single-use waste. We're not. Um, but perhaps some new... Uh, willingness to pivot and look at it from less of an ideological perspective and something that's actually going to achieve the result of reducing this waste and enabling businesses and consumer behavior to um, continue on to a place where uh, people see the value in bringing their own cups or or circular economy without a top-down punitive um, type approach that seems to be what uh, I hear from residents that they're very tired of. All right. Rebecca Bly, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show to talk more about this today. Thanks, Joe. Well, yesterday on the program, we spent a good amount of time talking about gas prices. A lot of people called in and called the buzz line talking about what they might do to change their behaviors. How do you try and save a bit of money? What do you do if you can't change your behavior? You need to drive for work and you need to spend a good amount of time in your vehicle for work. Well, it is expensive. And as we know, gas expected to keep creeping up past that $2 per liter mark for the near future, at least. But what are we actually paying when we put that money into our gas tanks? Well, Chris Sims is here, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and she's joining us to talk about that. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Well, I know that uh, I've talked to you back when on TV days when mm-hmm. we would talk to you, oftentimes it was in front of a gas station with a giant stop sign, and you and your federation have often talked about this, but we thought it would be a good reminder, a good uh, breakdown of the numbers to go through that liter of gas, the cost in VC, what are we actually paying? Great question. Uh, and again, we know that the price of oil uh, is determined by many factors, but we do know the taxes that go into it at the pump. So here in Metro Vancouver, we pay about 72 or 73 cents per liter in taxes for gasoline. So we can break that down. Uh, The big one is the TransLink tax in Metro Vancouver. That is 18.5 cents per liter. The provincial excise tax is 8.5 cents. The first carbon tax in BC is 10 cents a liter right now. The second carbon tax in BC is around 17 cents a liter. The federal sales tax, which is added after all of the taxes, is around 8.2 cents per liter. That goes up and down based on the pump price. And finally, the federal excise tax is 10 cents a liter. So you add all those up, and we're about 72, 73 cents per liter in taxes for gasoline. Which is a lot of money when you look at what we're paying and what it costs to buy gas. How does that compare then, or do you do comparisons with other provinces? Because that's the other title we have here is having the most expensive gas in North America. Yeah, uh, we have the most expensive gas in North America by price and in taxes. So we pay the highest taxes in North America on gasoline. We have to keep in mind also, uh, those of us filling up our gas vehicles, it's hard enough. Uh, With all these taxes combined, if you fill up a minivan, 
it's more than 50 bucks in taxes every fill up. So that's gasoline. But keep in mind, uh, these taxes, they're similar. They hit diesel, too. <laughs> and trucks bring us everything we eat and use. So guess what? Um, our prices of stuff are going to go up, too. When we look back to when the premier of the province was looking at this and said that the government was going to get to the bottom of why gas is so expensive, although a lot of people said, we can show you the taxes, but those were not part of the probe. Uh, If we remember back when we were told there were these 13 ghost cents, nobody knew where the 13 cents were going. Do we know that now? (laughs) Yeah, we know that. And the premier (laughs) knew it too. Um, You know, I've got kids and uh, it's really easy to tell, you know, did did you brush your teeth? You can tell in a second if they're telling you the truth. Uh, he knew full well that's the second carbon tax. That is the f- so-called uh, fuel standard that is tucked into government regulations. It is there because of government. Um, this is not a mystery. And then pretending to just be completely bewildered children in the forest and not knowing what it is was pretty silly. Um, and that was back then when he had his so-called investigation. Back then it was 13 cents ghost cents, as you put it. Now it's 17 cents. And, okay, so, and now with the carbon tax then set to go up again, less than a month from now, April 1st, we're seeing it rise again. So do we add that money? We're going to put it on the, the carbon tax side, or is that going to go into that pool of, of money where we don't know where it's going either? It'll go into the carbon tax side. So that will increase it. So it'll, right now we're at 45 bucks a tonne. It's going to go up to $50 per tonne April 1st. So that means approximately a one cent increase per litre for the first carbon tax. So we're going to be at 74 cents a litre uh, will be taxes. We have to also, I know this is grim, uh, but we have to keep in mind that we are also now tied to the so-called federal backstop. Uh, that's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, baseline for carbon taxes. And he's cranking it up to $170 a tonne within the next eight years. In normal people talk, that's going to be about 37 cents a litre just for the first carbon tax. That isn't including the second one. And Chris, we're talking about this today, obviously, because the price of gas is so high and expected to keep climbing. Uh, We've also been talking on the show today, we were talking about the cup fee in Vancouver for uh, single-use cups. And it seems like people are, it's almost like these fees and such, they're trying to pit people against each other, which I don't think is helpful in that no one is suggesting that we want cups going into landfill. No one is suggesting we want to continue this reliance on oil and continue the way we're going, that yes, changes need to be made, but it's not something that can happen overnight. There are still many people, many of who called this station yesterday saying, I still need to drive. I still, I have carry tools to work. I can't Mm -hmm. take the bus. There's not even a bus option where I live. Uh, What what can be done? What do you think people can do when it comes to looking at these huge taxes? I think they have a duty to speak up uh, because frankly, no one is going to help them unless they pick up the phone and try to help themselves. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing, you know, these crazy high carbon taxes, this war on the car, um, attacking people for now, they're even going after people who buy a natural gas furnace with an extra PST. Did, like a lot of people don't know, like it's 12% PST on buying a used car. That is an attack directly on working people, particularly low income people. It's gross. And I think one of the problems is, A lot of our politicians can get in there and they can stay there so long 
making their six-figure salaries. They can weather a pandemic and not bat an eyelid. They can get, you know, pay hikes in some cases. They've got gold-plated pensions to count on. They get totally disconnected from what an average working person has to do. And especially here in the Lower Mainland with housing prices so outrageous, people are busting their butts to try to just make the basic payments. And now when they're commuting in from the valley in towards the city, they're just paying through the nose. If you fill up a family, you know, sedan right now at a two, say it's $2, do the math. A family sedan is 70 liter tank. That's 140 bucks a fill up. And so I think folks need to pick up the phone, send an email, very strongly but politely worded, to Premier Horgan and say, we remember when you, you used to rail against the carbon tax when you were in opposition. You said it was too hard on working people. It was going to cost people too much to get to work and heat their homes. We remember you saying that. And we also remember that you used to be looking out for the little guy because the premier, before he was a, a politician, he used to bust tables. He used to drive, I think he even used to drive a truck a little bit when he was working in the mill. So he should remember what it was like to try to make ends meet. So I think it's our duty to remind them that they work for us. They are our employee. We are the boss. And they're making life unaffordable for average people here. And so we need to take action. Pick up the phone. Send that email. Tell them you will never vote for them again if they keep this up. Uh, and I'm, I'm imagining there are going to be more people that are doing that to, and taking action. Do you think, would it even make a difference then? Because the thing that bugs me too, and I think it bugs a lot of people, the idea of the sales tax that is applied after oh. all of those taxes. I mean, would it be that big of a deal for government to even just tweak that and say, okay, we're going to add the sales tax to the price of fuel, not to the price with all of these other fees and at least start there? Yeah, that would at least be an act of good faith. I'll put it that way. Uh, it would only save you maybe about two or three cents a litre, depending on the pump price. Uh, but still, uh, it would be a baby step. But frankly, um, we get phone calls every day from people uh, who are at their wits end. They, they're going into massive personal debt. They can't afford basics. And these are working people. These are people who are commuting to work, who are picking their kids up from school. They just can't do it anymore. And they keep asking us stuff like, how do people afford to live here? And I'm increasingly having to say, I don't know. Uh, so they need, they need swift, direct action. And if the premier picked up the horn and talked to Prime Minister Trudeau and those two very well-paid men agreed to scrap the carbon taxes, which aren't working, by the way, our emissions keep on going up in B.C. This is not helping the environment. It's just a massive tax grab. That would save 27 cents a litre of gasoline. Do the math. That's 20 bucks a fill-up per minivan. That would actually help these folks at least cut down those costs. All right, Chris Sims, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, it's uh, like you say, you get calls on this yep. every day. We do as well. So thanks so much for joining us and talking about this. Thank you for talking about this. Thanks for being with us. It is one thirty-four on this when, uh, I was going to say Wednesday. No, it is Thursday. This Thursday afternoon, we are going to talk more about, well, the cost of living affordability. That is something the Premier is being asked about. We're going to hear more from John Horgan a bit later today. Uh, this listener writes, I hope somebody asks the Premier today about the 10% salary increase for MLAs followed with the identical raise annually. They're imitating their federal MPs, I guess. And uh, interesting point 
uh, you're right. It doesn't always sit well with people when politicians vote themselves pay raises, especially uh, during a pandemic when so many people are having difficulties and uh, trying just trying to get through their daily lives. So let me know your thoughts on this. You can email me, jill at cknw.com, or give us a call on the buzz line at 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. We're going to shift gears a little bit right now and check in with the BC Craft Brewers Guild. They have some concerns about red tape and what it's taking for businesses to continue things like the expanded public patio programs, things that were really brought in to help small businesses, especially during this pandemic. And Ken Beattie joins us now, the Executive Director of the BC Craft Brewers Guild. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on, Jill. Uh, you've written a letter or released uh, a letter about some of the concerns in the city of Vancouver when it comes to, well, specifically talking about the public patio program. So what's happening with that? Yeah, what uh, the city of Vancouver consulted with our association and others and along with many members of uh, breweries in Vancouver in the fall to discuss uh, an extension of the program and what it may look like, either temporary or permanent. And we gave them feedback and went back and forth. It was probably 10, 12 hours of uh, consultation. Then when the report came out, um, we gave them more consultation. And the two big pieces that we wanted to address were a reduction in red tape, make it easy for the process because, you know, people have, we've already done it. We've had two years of patios and make it, uh, keep the cost down because after two years of COVID, people don't have the resources to spend an inordinate amount of money on, on, uh, application fees and then when the when they opened the the window i guess the application process this week um we were totally disappointed they they didn't address either of those concerns in our opinion and and so just to back up a little bit so so we're 100 percent clear what we're talking about you were talking about say the craft breweries and the places that were able to put patios up whether it was taking uh, some of the parking spaces or taking space in front of the building on the patio that kind of thing Completely, yes. So prior to COVID, breweries had to get a special license, like a food primary license in order to have a patio. Regular kind of mom and pop, smaller breweries didn't have access to patios. During COVID, um, we worked with the government, both municipal and uh, provincial, to have that extended to all breweries uh, in order to move people from inside to outside as per the public health. Uh, uh, order. And uh, it went, when we started that negotiation, it literally took 48 hours to 72 hours for the gov- all levels of government to agree and then to allow patios on breweries, which was a great win for us. And we've had that for two years now. Now they're kind of taking a step back to 2019 pre-pandemic red tape and, and studies. And now it's a seven to a nine month process. So it's been very disappointing. So for all the patios that are out there, though, and anybody that's been to the craft breweries, there are many of them in the city of Vancouver, uh, many of them have great patios and patio space and outdoor space. So for all of those spaces that are currently out there and have been there since that quick process and have been there throughout the pandemic, what does it mean for those spaces? They need to reapply for all those spaces to go through the process all over again. And it's on average, it, uh, estimate is about $5,000. They need architectural plans. They need um, building permits. One of the members has already spent between building permits and applications $3,000. 
So it's about a $5,000 process just to get what you've seen in previous years that costs zero, other than the building costs, obviously, to the the breweries. But, but, But so then would the scenario be if somebody doesn't apply, so there's already a patio sitting there and there could be people sitting at that patio drinking craft beer. But if the business doesn't apply to continue that, what, they're going to be told to tear it down? Yes, they'll be in contravention of their license. And it'll be told to turn down. So people will not be able to go to their local craft beer in their local neighborhood and sit on a patio unless it's been through this process. And so the problem is, in total, we have 26 members, breweries, and not everyone. Some have patios already that are permanent. But I've been told the number is 750 in the city of Vancouver. And the application process just started. And basically, April 1st is when patio season opens in the city's opinion. So there's no way they're going to process 750 applications in 28 days. That's not going to happen. So if you're accustomed to having a nice craft beer on your patio, chances are you're not going to have that potentially this summer unless something changes. Doesn't it seem a bit odd that, or, or that it should be complaint driven or, I mean, it's not as though, I know there was some concern. I remember the only the the one complaint that we saw at the very beginning of this was there was a patio pr- with umbrellas that maybe got in the sight line of trucks, and that that was a concern. But should it not be? Do you think complaint driven or or something else that if, if it's causing a problem, sure. But it doesn't seem like we're talking about that. Our recommendation during the consultation was you ask the question. It could be as simple as, did you have a temporary extended service area? patio yes did you uh do have you changed the occupancy mode of your overall location which is no because that's a different process no and then did you have any complaints from inspectors or neighborhoods uh that's a no then it's a green light go it's that simple it's three questions (laughs) uh we don't sure why they made it so complicated when you talk about the two, you're right. So there's no way that there's going to be all of those applications, even if everybody came up with the $5,000 and applied to have their patio continue. That's not going to happen in that short of a period of time. But I also can't see all of these breweries hauling down all of their patios. Do, do you feel like there will be breweries then that kind of do a wait and see or push it to see how far they can go, even though I guess they would be in contravention of, of the zoning? Yeah, I mean, we're going to continue to advocate not only municipally and provincially for an extension of the TESA. We're already in con- uh, contact, and that's our wish list. Ourselves in the BC Restaurant Association and the ABLE, which is the pubs association, we are looking to have that the overall uh, extension to say, listen, just keep what you had and let's extend it. Actually, why not extend it to April 2023? That makes more sense. Give people a chance to these small businesses a chance to breathe and collect back the revenue that they've lost over two years. We're not out of COVID yet. And we're not on the road to recovery because we don't know what the future holds. We have lots of good news from Dr. Henry, hopefully by the middle of the month, but it's not a certain, and we don't know when the variant comes back, if it does. So there's a number of pieces that you could, I think people will just stay open and we'll see. I mean, I think the public will lose their minds, to be honest, if they're used to, if we're getting, they're not able to have a nice beer on a patio because of red tape. I I don't think people will stand for that.
Uh, no, and I, I tend to agree with you. And isn't this something, though, that, and, and again, correct me, please, if I'm wrong, because I'm going by memory, but was there not also a lot of red tape in, in one of the craft breweries, I think, in Vancouver that wanted to have a food truck outside? And this was back when food trucks were starting up and they were newish. Uh, they had to bring the food truck inside because you couldn't have food inside the building that was that was cooked off-site, even though it was the food truck right outside that was regulated by the city. Uh, I've noticed that some, some of the craft brew pubs now do have food trucks that bring food in, which seems like a very good idea. But again, to be able to get to that point, it just seems like there has been so much red tape and so many silly rules to even get here. Yeah, the, the, the great news is it, it, the silver lining of this is that when industry and municipal and provincial government recognize a problem such as food trucks or that, let's use that as the example, when they work together to find a solution that removes the barriers uh, around a successful business, it can happen really quickly. The last time we did this, we did it in, as I said, 72 hours. With the food trucks, it's been great through through uh, COVID uh, because you've been able to order, particularly for the breweries, because we're not necessarily set up to have any kitchen facilities or big kitchens. We're breweries. We're not restaurants. But we work with the local restaurants and pubs in our local neighborhoods and food trucks to deliver food. You can order food to the brewery. You can walk outside and get your food and take it back in. That's all been allowed. And those are great strides that both provincially and municipally have occurred. But to take that kind of a way, to take a step back when we're trying so hard to recover, just doesn't make any sense to anyone, logically. What do you do next then if this is what the city has put forward to you, that that something that could have been done or was done in 72 hours expedited has been, I think most would argue, has been a huge success in helping the businesses, giving people places to go that are safe, that are outdoors. Uh, If the city doesn't change this or doesn't extend being able to do this in an expedited way, what happens to all these craft breweries and these patios? Well, I, it, we'll have to. I think it'll be a, 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 a fight. I think that people will defy um, moving forward, and we don't want to condone that. But that's going to be the option. I think the public will absolutely not realize that they will be on to city hall. And this, I, I'd also like to point out, Joe, this isn't just city of Vancouver. This is municipalities across the province. I talked to uh, a brewery in Smithers today. He's already up to three, 2000 plus dollars in application fees, a brewery in Squamish, same thing. Um, they, they, it just seems to be mired in red tape all of again. And so I think at some point there'll be a pushback. We'll have to push back. We don't want that. We want to be able to find a solution that works for the municipalities, a blanket solution that works for municipalities and the provincial government and the hospitality industry. And that solution is as simple as answering these th- the three questions we talked about. It's not a permanent. It's different when you're talking about a permanent patio than a temporary. So are you changing your occupancy? No. Did you have any issues? in the last two years, no. And um, are you using the same space as you did last time? Yes. Tick, good, let's go. So let's hope that happens. Would it change then if somebody was wanting to make it permanent or or is there any reason to even have more questions, more red tape if, if they wanted to make it permanent or expand it? Yeah, permanent is different under the Liquor Regulation Act. So now you're discussing the occupancy load. So if you're talking that you've been approved for 100 people, and now with a patio, you want to be approved for the red line, they call it, you want to be approved for 130 people, that's a longer process. And you're also investing in full 
full-time structure that doesn't come down or is removed. So you're talking tenting and heating and maybe a fireplace and everything else that goes with making a really nice patio. Um, so that is a different process that we understand that takes time and people are working towards that too. But in the meantime, give them the temporary space that doesn't affect their occupancy load so they can generate the income for the money that it's going to cost to have a really nice permanent piece. All right. Well, Ken, we're going to follow up uh, on this for sure. So keep us posted, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about it today. Thanks so much, Jill. I really appreciate it.